Today on The Grave Talks, the Amityville Horror Inception, the Laura DiDio account, part one. One twelve Ocean Avenue, the Amityville Horror. At the time of our broadcast here, it's been nearly 45 years since the DeFeo family were brutally murdered in their Amityville home. A murder that to this day is still shrouded in supernatural mystery. How exactly did the murderer manage to take the lives of his six family members with a high-powered, deafening shotgun? Without anyone in the home or neighborhood waking to the deadly blasts. Did something dark assist in this tragedy? Then, nearly one year after the tragedy took place, George and Kathy Lutz would attempt to call this murder scene home. The attempt would only last 28 days, with the family fleeing a haunted house like the world has never seen. Shortly after their fleeing, they would come in contact with a young reporter, Laura DiDio, from Channel 5, New York. Well, first of all, my own mother was psychic. Okay. okay. And it wasn't um, something that uh, we talked about a lot. It was just something that was there. She sort of knew things before they happened. Um, and it wasn't always good stuff. Like she woke up one morning uh, when we were at our summer home in Maine and said she had a terrible dream about our family dog, Freddie. And we were all crying. And two days later, the dog got um, run over and killed by a truck. Um, and she brought home one time um, this book, The Ghost Hunter by Hans Holzer, which was on the bestseller list. And I picked up the book and I read it and I was fascinated. And of course, everybody in their family had a, um, had a book about ghost story. I'm sure you had it in your family as well. Mm -hmm. But I was always fascinated by that and, and the fact that my my mother herself was, was psychic. So that kindled my interest um, in the supernatural. When it comes so, to, to having a family member that is psychic and, and having that, that level of sensitivity, sometimes we see that passed down from generation to generation. Did you at that time have any inklings that, that you had any type of ability that way, whether it be psychic or empathically? Um, no, I didn't. Certainly not to the degree that my mother did. Although I will say over the years, it's, you know, if you hang around people who are talented to that, you know, to that degree, mm -hmm. You sort of pit it. Some of it will rub off on you naturally. Sure. And I'm not claiming any any great ability, but if you hang around with musicians long enough in a studio, <laughs> <laughs> you sort of pick something up just by osmosis. Sure. So over the years, that uh, that has to to some degree happened to me as I've um, worked with psychics and been on cases and done research. You you open yourself up to that, and you become more aware, mm -hmm. because to a certain degree, we all have a, a psychic sense. It is a sixth sense, like speech, touch, sense, hearing, mm -hmm. feeling. It's just a case of developing it. Sure. Now, that said, you know... A lot of people can play the piano. That doesn't mean we're going to be, you know, Mozart. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people who play basketball, but you're, you're not going to be in the NBA. That said, you can develop, you can develop it to the best of your ability. Sure. You know, I go to the gym and work out. I'm not going to be a bodybuilder, but I can get stronger. Sure. So anybody out there, you know, can can develop it um, just by paying attention to what's all around us. I think that sixth sense that we all have gets lost in the hustle and bustle of everyday life, especially today 
when we've got social media and, you know, you're trying to balance a checkbook, run around to get to work, you get caught in a traffic jam, those things. So we're not paying attention to things. But certainly little things that happen every day, like deja vu or something pops into your head, I should call so-and-so, um, et cetera. And as we get into talking about the um, Amityville horror story, um, I have a very interesting experience in that vein to recount to you about just something that happened with myself and Lorraine Warren that popped up out of the blue. I'd love to hear about long that. After, long after the Amityville Horror, the events of the Amityville Horror. Let's talk about Ed and Lorraine for a moment. You had contact with them and you knew who they were and, and had some professional interaction with them as a reporter prior to the Amityville case, correct? Yes. Well, I was a student at Fordham University majoring in communications. In other words, journalism, uh, broadcast, you know, with an emphasis on uh, both print and broadcasting and, and also radio. So uh, being at uh, Fordham had uh, was... Fordham University, WFUV, was one of the first 50,000-watt FM stereo stations in the country going back to 1947. And Ed and Lorraine, Fordham, of course, for those who don't know, is located in the Bronx. And that's really only about 30 miles away, 30, 40 miles away from Monroe, Connecticut, where the Warrens lived Mm -hmm. um, for most of their life. And At that time, prior to the Amityville horror case, uh, the Warrens had made um, a pretty good name for themselves locally in the tri-state area as uh, paranormal researchers. They They did not yet have the national reputation that they would later develop. Um, And again, with my interest in um, paranormal research, I, they were one of the first people that I wanted to contact. I also, ironically, I, I also interviewed Hans Holzer, who was based in Manhattan. He had a pretty big name for himself as well, having authored many books, including the best-selling uh, Ghost Hunter. So I had interviewed Ed and Lorraine um, on my radio show and also Ed and Lorraine had been interviewed several times on Channel 5 News and other local media outlets in the New York City area. Um, Lorraine was known as a light trans medium, which was different from, say, um, Ethel Johnson Myers, who worked with Hans Holzer, where she was a deep trans medium, which meant she went into a full trans state where she was out of it. Lorraine was always, as a light trans medium, conscious and working, but sort of in in an altered state. But she was aware of her surroundings, Mm -hmm. where a deep trans medium went someplace else and had a spirit guide. Sure. So the Warrens were were always very uh, forthcoming. They were always very helpful. And, you know, just nice people to be around. Ed uh, called himself a demonologist so that when he and Lorraine would work a case, he was, you know, he took the lead um, position while Lorraine was more of the empath, Mm -hmm. picking up perceptions and the feelings because she was the one who had the um, psychic abilities. Sure. Sure. So obviously you got to know them a little bit through the interviews and, and understand what they were doing. And, uh, and the, the tense of this is the, this is not the Ed and Lorraine Warren that we know of today. This is prior to all of all the books. This is prior to the movies. This is prior to all of that. This is very much, you know, at, at uh, towards the beginning uh, or, or, or in, in the, 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 part of their career where they were basically this material was was being put together and their research was going on let's yes but i have to say the uh, when you say the ed and lorraine of today or the present Mm -hmm. that the public came to know sure uh because of the amityville horror because of um the conjuring 
movie, they remained remarkably unaffected. They would still answer their phone, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't go Hollywood. No, no, not at will. all. I guess I, I meant more so just in the terms of of of, of notoriety of, of 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 how well known they became. But uh, no, I I completely agree of how they they always were Ed and Lorraine. Yes, they were, and you know, there's it's it's amazing because when you talk about um, the notable personages in the field of the paranormal. Uh, there's always a lot of uh, professional rivalry, mm-hmm. if you will, as you have in any field. Um, and Ed and, and Lorraine, uh, one of the things that was most amazing about them, and you, you have people, uh, as, as in any field, people who will, uh, people have their critics and they have their proponents. But what I will tell you is that with Ed and Lorraine, um, from the get-go, they were their primary goal was always to help people. So to give you an example, when I was I, I first started working at Channel Five through an internship that I got because I was a student at Fordham, and then I was working there as uh, the internship progressed, and I became a um, part-time employee and then a full-time news assistant while I was still at school before I had graduated. And I was actually working on a series um, on psychic phenomenon when, believe it or not, in January, uh, late January, early February, the news about the Lutzes fleeing 112 Ocean Avenue broke in New York Newsday. And it just so happened that the two things coincided. And the news director at Channel 5 at the time, Mark Monsky, said, oh, get that story. So shortly after this article appeared in New York Newsday, where the Lutzes had held a press conference with William Weber, all of a sudden they disappeared. And nobody could find them. And you have to go back to 1976, where we didn't have the internet, you didn't have mobile phones. Hard to imagine, I know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Where did they go? It seemed like they just went underground. Um, And William Weber at the time, he had been acting as their spokesperson. And so we contacted him. And uh, there were plans afoot where uh, he was going to be working at, at the time with ABC Eyewitness News, the local station, and a group of white witches to hold a seance in the house. And also a vampirologist. And he said, well, when I contacted him, he says, you, you folks at Channel 5 might be able to come along as well. Then, I guess at some point, the Lutzes had um, broken off contact with William Weber, and that just dissipated. So, at that point, I um, had contacted um, George Lutz. I had called into his company firm, mm-hmm. his company firm, they had a uh, surveying firm. And so, I called out there. And I left a message, said who I was, and I said, you know, I have some experience working um, with uh, and interviewing other people, you know, uh, para- professional paranormal researchers, and I'd like to help you and your family. And I left the message with um, the people who worked for him. And he called me back, and I arranged to meet him on a Saturday at his uh, the surveying firm, but I didn't tell anybody at the TV at the TV station because I wa- I was afraid of over promising and under delivering and getting fired. Sure. Okay, I was just a lowly news assistant, mm-hmm. <laughs> just starting my career. Yeah. And even though I just had this menial job and I wasn't yet you know I wasn't yet out of college, 
I didn't want to lose it. Sure. <laughs> Have my computer go down in flames before it started. So um, essentially, I went out there um, the next day and met with George and Kathy and, uh, for four hours. And they said, okay, that at the end of the, the meeting, and I listened to their story, and I came back convinced that uh, something had really happened to them because they felt uh, they, they seemed very sincere and very frightened. Mm -hmm. So unless they were, you know, the, the Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro of their day and had totally, con you know, convinced me, and maybe I was just, you know, a lot of people listening to this might think, well, you know, she was a gullible 19-year-old who desperately wanted to believe. And there probably was an element of that, too, because sure. this, this, this was a, a really juicy story. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that people have to understand is that irrespective of whether or not the, they were telling the truth or fabricating, you know, a huge hoax, the station was going to go with that. Regardless, at that point, everybody in town, all of the news outlets wanted that story. You know, New York is the number one media outlet. Yeah. This, this story was happening. It had all of the elements that you would want. Uh, there had been a sextuple homicide in that house just a year before. And those are rare. I mean, George, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, Ronald DeFeo Jr. had killed his entire family. Sure. His, his four siblings, his parents, in this very upscale suburban neighborhood, in this beautiful home. Um, and then you had a family that was saying, that had moved in and out of the house within a month, saying it was haunted. And this was also just a year or two after the exorcist movie had scared even non-believers yeah i want to so, talk i want to talk about the the defeo murders as, as we kind of move down the line here of things and i have a couple questions about uh, that that initial interview with with george and kathy um with the defeo murders um even prior to that to your knowledge, and I, I know you, you've done your digging as a reporter you know, on this when you were reporting on, on the topic initially, and I'm sure in years prior, has there ever been anything about the history of the property or the house or anything that, that raises any eyebrows as to why this house was, for lack of a better term, haunted? Not really. Okay, so at the time, once the Lutzes moved in and out very quickly. Mm -hmm. They themselves were uh, trying to dig into that. And of course, um, when a lot of people, when William Weber, who was trying to get an appeal for Ronnie Jr., mm -hmm. um, and he came upon the Lutzes, uh, and and you have to say William Weber was doing it did a really good job for you know yeah on Ronnie's behalf at the first trial and then when the Lutzes contacted him and told their story that was a very novel approach to say you know to try and get an appeal saying sure. you know hey the devil you know yeah <laughs> the he devil could have made Ronnie do it yeah. at that point it does become you know, rather murky. Now, certainly there's no doubt that Ronnie was on drugs. Certainly there was no doubt that uh, he had, that there were troubles in the family. Um, and Ronnie's story has changed a lot over the years. So he is not what anyone would call a credible source. So at the time, there were rumors that, you know, they had masses in the house. Now, the family was very religious. They did have, you know, it's a matter of record that they had, you know, the holy the holy statues on the lawn. Sure. There, there's nothing about that. But, you know, there were rumors that they had a mass set in the house, which, you know, some Catholics, you know, have done. There's nothing that unusual about that. No, especially and at that, the time. 
candles had, you know, but, you know, wind came up even though the windows were closed and the candles were blown out. There was nothing to support that as being as a fact. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no. Um, and I did research on the property itself. The original um, house had been moved there, and it is true that the um, there uh, there was there were Native American burial grounds there. Again, that's not unusual. My hometown of College Point, Queens, which is about thirty five miles um, away from Amityville you know, further in, in Queens, also uh, was, had a lot of Native Americans um, that lived along the shoreline. Sure. And you would have burial grounds. But we're not talking about the Native American burial grounds that you saw in Last of the Mohegans (laughs) or Jeremiah Johnston. Okay? Yeah. The Native Americans did bury their dead along there and um even up here in my in where i live in massachusetts now Mm -hmm. we do have some native american burial grounds that look more like what you and i would think of as traditional cemeteries now when i went into the house afterwards several months later in january 1977 with hans holzer and ethel johnson myers who did go into a deep trance and the spirit, um, her spirit guide came through. We did hear um, uh, an Indian, a Native American boy came through, and he was upset because he said that some kids, local kids, had found his skull and were kicking it around like a football, which is also entirely possible. Sure. But... Do I think that that was the the subject of the hauntings? Now, in when Lorraine went into um, the trance during the seance on March sixth, nineteen seventy six, when we filmed it for Channel Five, she felt that it was actually not so much the ghost of the departed DeFeos, but she felt like it was a demonic entity. That, as she said during the seance, it came from the bowels of the earth. That's what she said during that seance. Something that's almost feeding off of all the negative energy that was so recently present in that yeah. home. Yeah. And I think when you have when you have something, this is my personal opinion now, not Laura DiDio reporter. Sure. And I like to make the distinction between what I witnessed as a reporter and a professional observer and what my personal opinion is just as Laura DiDio citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my personal opinion is that when you have uh, events like that, where people uh, you were violently killed, especially children, and let's face it, the DeFeos, at least the kids, were murdered in their sleep. And those kids ranged in age from almost 18 down to nine, the four kids, two boys and two girls. Um, Ronald DeFeo Sr., they know that he actually sort of half rose from the bed. And his wife, Louise, um who was next to him in the bed, um, she she was also killed where she slept. One thing that nobody understood, including uh, the district attorney, was how they never really woke up. Yeah. So to speak. And how nobody else in the neighborhood heard it, even though it was, you know... Um, in that, you know, in Suffolk County, the houses are not as close together 
as you would have in a densely populated neighborhood like, say, downtown San Francisco or Queens, New York or Manhattan. But they're also not it's not a rural neighborhood. Yeah, it's a you know, and you're right on the water. So sounds, you know, can carry a place where today, if you went and fired off that same gun in a home, you would certainly hear it next door and probably several doors down. That, that is one of those things that I want to ask you as as, as Laura, the, the citizen, looking back on this and in all these years later, do you have any any and I don't say explanation because I don't think any of us will ever have the explanation, but any reasoning that, that you've worked out in your mind as to how that was possible? Because that certainly is one of the biggest mysteries in this whole thing is how no one could have heard those gunshots, how all those people stayed in their beds, no drugs in the toxicology reports. How did that transpire like that? Any any insight or thoughts on that? No, and, you know, it's it's interesting that you should say that because I have gone back and um, interviewed uh, the people who did, you know, uh, the, the DA and the person who did, you know, the book mm-hmm. um, with the Suffolk County DA who prosecuted Ronald DeFeo. Mm-hmm. And... They didn't have an ex- exclamation, uh, any explanation for it either. I mean, one of the last things in the book that um, they had written about that was, uh, you know, uh, I often wonder about the dead DeFeos and how come they didn't, yeah. how they didn't wake up. Yeah. Um, and there were no, how there were no drugs in the system. Uh, in their system with the toxicology, so they hadn't been drugged. Why were they all, you know, found in the in the same position? It, so it, it's such a, it, it's, a it's it is inexplicable. It is. It's it, it's one of those things. The only thing I can do as, as someone who's who's it, told ghost stories, read ghost stories, and have heard you know thousands of them over the years here on this show, I can only when I I get a story and, and someone says this happened. I can only say, well, I've, I've heard something similar from other stories. So the only thing I could add into that, uh, having heard so many stories, is other stories where sound at times in, in haunting situations seems to be able to be sucked in or not dispersed as it normally would be. And it makes you wonder, uh, just as I have stories where people call in and, and say, my child or I was screaming at my head off from the room, but no one else in the, the house could hear me. And they were the next bedroom over. It's that principle. It's it's for whatever reason. Sometimes there are these cases where the entity or whatever is in the house is muffling the sound that no one else can hear it right next door. I'm wondering if something of that nature was happening in the home to to keep those sounds from being heard throughout the home. That That's that's what I'm wondering. Yes, and the other, the other, the other explanation, the the other thing that any logical person would say was, well, maybe he had an accomplice. Sure. And of course, one of the theories has always, uh, you know, was always that, oh, uh, he hinted himself, Ronald DeFeo Jr., um, during, you know, his time there. Um, on the stand and sense and in the many interviews that he's given, oh, that his sister Dawn, mm-hmm. you know, committed one of the murders. And there's never been any credible evidence that that was the, that that was the case. Sure, sure. So, it, you know. It shall remain um, a mystery. <laughs> yes, it is. So, but so assuming, of course, and, and that was dispelled in, in the book, yeah. you know, written about it, about it. And of course, anybody who wanted to know, um, uh, the best, in my mind, the best book was High Hopes, The Amityville Murders, which was written by um, Gerard Sullivan and Harvey Aronson of uh, Newsday. Um, and the last page of the book, um, Gerard Sullivan, 
writes, I still think about the DeFeo case, and I'm quoting directly right here, especially about the children. And I wonder about the questions that were never answered. Did any of the victims wake up? If so, why didn't any of them defend themselves? Why were all six found face down in death? Why didn't anyone hear the shots? And this is, you know, this is from the defense attorney. You know, the the, the, Queen, the, the Suffolk County DA, yeah. rather, excuse me. And he had no explanation. And he was, he poured over every... Every bit of evidence. Now, of course, um, in talking, uh, Gerard Sullivan um, has um, since passed away, but um, several years back I did interview Harvey Aronson, who was um, a former, he, for many years he was a Newsday editor. He co-wrote the book with Gerard Sullivan. Um, he was for many years um, also a journalism teacher. He, he, quite frankly, thought that the whole idea of the haunting was, was pretty much, you know, a money-making hoax. Um, and, and, of course, he's, he's, you know, entitled to his opinion. And if you go out to Amityville, you know, you can imagine what a pain in the neck Sorry. that is with people driving by and coming by and, you know, busloads of tourists and things. Every time something new uh, comes out, you, you, you know, almost, you, the you, books, the movies, etc. You, you want to tell people it's a hoax if you live there to try and get them to stop frequenting the road in the nice neighborhood. <laughs> just, just give them some. And they've, some you peace. know, they've they've changed the windows on the house. Yeah. They've changed the address, and you know, and it gets referenced in TV shows and. You know, it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Oh, um, let's, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. Let's go back to that day when you met with George uh, at his firm and you had that forward conversation with George and Kathy there. Uh, at this point, when, when they were getting ready uh, and you were talking to them about uh, doing the investigation with the TV station was their relationship with William Weber and Kaplan, had that been broken off at that point? Yes. Okay. Now, I want to talk about that for a moment because two of the biggest dissenters, obviously, in the whole case and the, the people that are, are the quickest or had been the quickest to say this is a hoax, this is not true, were those two. Um, it seems. And I wonder if you can give any insight into that um, just as as yourself, as as a person and, and as a reporter with some of the facts that have been gathered as to why why do you think it is that that those two after the fact, after they they began to publicize this more and more and these two weren't involved in that. Uh, one can from a distance look and go, oh, they seem scorned because they weren't directly involved with the publicity of it. And maybe they're jealous and now they're going to try and get their piece of it by saying this is all a hoax. Um, and there's 30 different arguments, I guess you could make on that. Uh, but but what, what is your, your insight into to why that relationship did break off between Weber and, and who the vampirologist Kaplan, who also wrote the book? Well, I, I do think... Uh... Um, it was a case of, of, you know, being scorned. I had talked to um, Kaplan on the phone at the time because, of course, I was trying to get the story as well. Mm -hmm. And at that point, both Weber and Kaplan, when they were still involved with the Lutzes, were conduits to that. Sure. Um, I have to say, I thought the idea, the notion of a vampirologist was a little out there. <laughs> yes. Myself. Um, uh, William Weber was never anything but nice, uh, to, you know, to me, mm -hmm. um, and I was going to do whatever I could to get the story. Um, but yeah, I think that they, that they were scorned, you know, that they were scorned by the way, William Weber and his partner, Bernie Burton, uh, were respected attorneys. Mm -hmm. And again, when you go back and you look at the record, and you actually read um, Gerard Sullivan 
and Harvey Aronson's book, High Hopes, Weber did a very credible job in trying to, def- in, in trying to defend uh, Ronnie DeFeo mm-hmm. in what was, uh, you know, something, it was a very, very uphill battle. It was yeah. like the 101 tasks of Hercules, you know, because they had Ronnie DeFeo pretty much dead to rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think um, Kaplan was trying to make a name for himself and establish himself as a vampirologist. Again, you're in, you know, you're in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Home P.T. Barnum. <laughs> yeah. What was, what was the so, reason when, when you talked with George and Kathy, uh, why, why did these relationships break off where had it, it had been so, you know, you know, very much in depth where well, Weber's speaking out for them initially. And then all of a sudden it all falls apart. Was it, did it have to do with Weber? I think it was a case Weber, uh, you know, Weber had his agenda. George and Kathy went to Weber um, because he had defended Ronnie DeFeo, and they wanted to find out if Ronnie DeFeo had had any experiences, you know, in the house or what had gone on. And I think William Weber, for his part, wanted to get an appeal for his client. Mm-hmm. And then, as they all admit, they sat down with several bottles of wine, and the Lutzes did play uh, an audio tape for me, uh, and they said, uh, listen, we're not proud of this. And on the tape, uh, they were going to put the house in a trust, and almost charge admission for it. And, you know, um, they were concocting this tale about, you know, the haunting, and they were going to exaggerate certain aspects of it. And I vividly recall at one point George saying, okay, I don't want the kids involved at all in this. They have to stay out of it. And... William Weber's response was, no, of course, God bless them. And I vividly recall the God bless them part. And when when George finished playing the tape for me, he said, we're not very proud of this. Do you still want to talk to us? And I said, well, of course I do. And I said, actually, I said, I think that the only thing you should be concerned about at this point is your family. And at this, George and Kathy um, were living with Kathy's mother, Joan, because they had left the house, they had left um, Ocean Avenue and they didn't go back there. So they had moved in with her mother. And it was a nice little bungalow house, but, you know, they were cramped. You know, Kathy's mother was um, uh, a working uh, woman, you know, very middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a good job at Grumman, um, the aircraft company, and Kathy's sister lived there as well. Um, so, and Kathy's mother was very, you know, Irish Catholic, religious, no nonsense. And at that point, I... Uh, said, you need to be put in touch with someone who can really help you. And we were, I originally reached out to Hans Holzer, who was um, not available. And then we, then I called Ed and Lorraine Warren. But getting back to your original question, I think the reason it fell apart between Weber and George Lutz, who was obviously the stronger of the two in terms of George and Kathy, was a control issue. Both of them were were vying for control. And uh, William Weber was sort of acting as the mouthpiece, if you will, for for the Lutzes in trying to set up this uh, publicity 
campaign having uh, Channel 7 Eyewitness News go in with full-blown, you know, white witches and the vampirologist, etc. Sure. On the, so, on that tape, when, when I don't know if you can recall this part of it, because it gets down to a pretty specific part when you're listening to it. Was Weber leading them in the idea of this admission scheme or the let's over-publicize this, and then George and Kathy are sitting there going, well, you know, we, okay, you know, let's kind of, you know, and they, they kind of go along with it, or was it George and Kathy coming to Weber going, hey, we have this idea, what do you think? The the order in which that occurred, I think, it would be very interesting for a lot of people who always cite that specific night of a lot of bottles of wine, it's a hoax. That's what you hear so often without getting into the details of it. Well, as I recall, it was um, Weber who came up with the idea of putting, because he was the lawyer, Yeah, putting the house in, in a trust and sort of, you know, making it like a haunted house attraction, charging mm-hmm. admission. But then um, the Lutzes were, were were coming up with ideas to actively uh, promote and exaggerate things that had happened in the house. Okay. So- in terms of their experience. If you're asking whether or not they were actually sitting there as just passive, passively letting... William Weber lead them by the nose, mm-hmm. the answer was no. Okay. When, when you had the conversation with them after they had broke uh, their relationship off with Weber, um, what was their goal at that point when you had, were talking to them? Obviously, they're, they're in a really weird situation here. They're, they're not in their home anymore. They, they don't feel comfortable going back to the home. They, they have the story of these horrible things that occurred in this home. And then they had this conversation these conversations with with the Weber and Kaplan about uh, the possibility of, of uh, promoting this and, and, and finding a way to, to profit from it uh, or the possibility of and, and then that falls apart and and they're they, they're talking to you what's their mindset what are they what are they wanting at this point well that was that was interesting because I was you know and I have my I'm, I'm looking at my original notes and my original write-up from the time. Um, and I was listening to this incredible story un- unfold, and here I am, and I, I had to make a determination about whether or not they were telling the truth or, you know, just trying to perpetrate a hoax. Either way, I knew that the station was going to go for it because sure. it was going to be ratings, okay? So at the time, I thought that they were on the level because... Since that one and only press conference with Weber, they had not sought any publicity. In fact, they were hiding. They were really hiding. Um, And they appeared to be genuinely terrified. The other thing was, you know, Kathy's mother, again, this woman, you know, had a regular nine to five job. She had a good job. She's a very religious woman. Um... You know, there were holy statues and crucifixes all over the house. I felt like I was in a church. That's how big some of these statues were. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they did it. You know, they, they came clean right away. They did not have to play me that tape, that audio tape. Yeah. And at that point, remember, William Weber was not on and and. Uh, Kaplan were not on TV or in the news denouncing them. Nobody knew that this thing was going to be as big as it was. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, you're, you're in New York. There are a lot of ghost stories and haunted houses. There's no way, there would have been no way to predict that this one was going to take off. Sure. They said that they would give me the exclusive. The other thing that struck me at the time, though, I, I will say that was odd was that when um, George was talking about the experiences and, and, you know, Kathy talked too, but when Kathy would, she was very, very soft spoken. So 
you almost had to strain to hear her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, when he when he described when they described some of the things that happened, uh, it was like every type of paranormal occurrence, except for Frankenstein and the mummy. Yeah. And Count Dracula had been visited upon these people. You know, it was incredible. So um, the following week, what happened was um, we, I had called Hans, well, I had called Hans Holzer. So at that point, we had to get a credible paranormal researcher in there. Sure. And Hans Holzer had also done a, um, a full documentary on Channel 5. Um, in the late 60s on the Café Bazaar, uh, which was a discotheque in Greenwich Village mm-hmm. that had been the former home of, of Aaron Burr. And when they turned it into a discotheque, people would be out there, you know, and spaced out on um, marijuana, acid, LSD, and they would be seeing actually the ghost of Aaron Burr, although nobody knew it was Aaron Burr at the time, on the dance floor. And they'd get freaked out. And he had gone in with Sybil Leake, who was a white witch and also a trans medium, and had done, and it was, it was quite a successful documentary. So Hans wanted to do a serious sort of documentary approach to this. And, of course, Channel 5 just wanted to go in and do a down and dirty, you know, newscast and, you know, inexpensively. Sure. So Hans sort of passed on it because he had other things to do. So at that point, I called the Warrens. And um, again, a lot of people um, in the paranormal research uh, profession will, uh, there's a lot of professional jealousy and what have you. But I have to say the Warrens never asked for any money. What they they did say, their first thing was when I told them about it, they said, how can we help? I explained the case to them. Um, Lorraine was on one phone and Ed was on the extension. And all they asked for, and this is the God's honest truth, was uh, money for gas and tolls. And at the time, uh when you when you had to drive from Connecticut down to New York, there were about five twenty five cent tolls, and they would really foul up traffic to stop for these tolls mm-hmm. <laughs> before you got to the um, the the Whitestone and then the you know the the or the tri you know the Triborough Bridge et cetera to get into Manhattan. Sure, and we sure we'll pay for gas and tolls, you know. And um, so they came down uh, the following week. It was Wednesday, February 23rd, and Steve Bauman was the reporter. This was before Marvin Scott. And um, Steve Bauman was known, was an Emmy-winning investigative reporter. He did a lot of the political reporting and investigation into corrupt politicians, and he did um, uh, things on uh, the horrific conditions at um, Willowbrook, which was a... um, a state institution, a mental institution. Geraldo Rivera also worked on that as well. Mm-hmm. And we went in with Lorraine and uh, uh, and Ed, and it was it was really kind of funny because we had to meet um, George to give us the keys. And it was a cold, rainy night. And again, we are working without any mobile phones or anything. We had phones in the car, in the crew car, and we were supposed to meet uh, George to get the, to get the keys to get into the house. And he wasn't where we were meeting him, so Lorraine and I were trying to call him at his mother-in-law's house, and we kept uh, we were in the phone booth. Yes, we really did have phone booths in those days. (laughs) (laughs) And we were getting snap, crackle, pop on the phone booth. Mm -hmm. We literally could not get through. 
that wraps up part one of our interview with Laura DiDio in part two. How did Laura and Lorraine Warren eventually get the phone to work through demonic interference? What did the Amityville Police Department think of Lorraine Warren and Laura showing up asking for help from the chief of police? What did George Lutz share about his experiences at the house with Laura, Ed, and Lorraine Warren over dinner one night? When Laura went into the house with Ed and Lorraine on their first visit, what was felt and experienced by all? Did the DeFeo family furniture contribute to the negative energy in the Amityville Horror House? And why was George hesitant to fully share the details of what was going on in the house with Ed and Lorraine Warren? All of that and more in the second part of this interview with Laura DiDio. To hear it, become a gravekeeper of our program. That's a supporter. You go to patreon.com slash the grave talks. You'll have access to part two of this interview and all of our interviews months before they're released to the public. You're supporting the program and keeping us on the air. We greatly appreciate that. It's only $5 a month. Patreon.com slash the grave talks or go to the grave and follow the links there. Until next time for The Grave Talks, I'm Tony Bruschi. Thanks for listening.